Thank you, Father, for again bringing us here. Uh, thank you for a warm place to meet and worship you. And we thank you, uh, especially for your word. And we ask you to use it this morning to, uh, to give us uh, comfort where necessary, to give us boldness where necessary, to um, convict us where necessary. I pray that you'll help me as I preach so that I will say what, uh, I will explain only what you have revealed and not add my own stuff. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, Peter and, and John have, have defied the most powerful men in Israel. The Sanhedrin ordered them to speak no more in Jesus' name. And Peter and John have refused to obey, to obey that order. Now, their defiance wasn't the you're not the boss of me kind of defiance that we might be, you might be used to. The, the Sanhedrin has legitimate authority from God. That's true about, about every authority that, that there is. Uh, that's why Jesus says through Paul in Romans chapter 13 to honor, respect, and, and submit yourself to those who God has, has placed over you in whatever place you are. Uh, governors, teachers, judges, parents, uh, bishops, because they're his ministers. That's why you submit to them. And you give them the honor that you would give to Jesus. Not the worship that you'd give to Jesus, but definitely the honor that you would, you would give to him. And that's, that's difficult. We have to be honest with ourselves. That's difficult because, uh, because they're not Jesus. And Jesus uh, is, is right about everything that he says and, and does. But your, your boss can be very wrong about things that he or she says or does. So just to use myself for an example, if, 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 if the bishop uh, were to be about to make a, a bad decision, that's purely hypothetical, by the way, because the bishop, of course, never makes bad decisions. Um, and, and I knew, I figured, I thought it was going to be a bad decision. And I thought, oh, there's a better way to do this. I, I, well, I should uh, respectfully humbly uh, tell him what I think. But then in the, in the end, if he, if he decides to go ahead and do the thing that I don't think he should, he should do, I've, I've just got to follow his lead. And, and not, in the, not in the Israel in the wilderness kind of following the lead, where you're just grumbling all the time. Well, this is the dumbest thing. I can't believe he's making this ridiculous decision. I can't believe he's doing this. Not that kind of, of following. I've got to be respectful about it. As if the decision came down from Jesus himself. Because Jesus set him over me. And there's a very good chance that those over me and those over you uh, see things, notice factors and uh, elements of the situation that, that you don't see. People who don't learn to just say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, and, and go on when something's not going the way, way uh, usually end up pretty miserable. Some of them even, and you know this, some of them even have wandered around in the desert for 40 years because they couldn't, they couldn't do it. You don't want to be like that. Now, that being said, like we said last week, if any teacher or leader or parent or priest or bishop or employer says, okay, well, here's our new policy, and the new policy requires you to disobey God in some way, 
well, you can't follow that policy, whatever it might be. In this case, Jesus commissioned Peter and John and the entire church to teach his law and preach his gospel in his name. So they cannot obey the Sanhedrin, just told them not to preach in Jesus' name. And so they, so they say, and you know, you read it, so they say, take that order and stick it in your hat. It's not what they say. That's my own thing. It's actually, they said it very respectfully. They weren't disrespectful at all in the way they defied the bishop. Excuse me, the Sanhedrin. That was a bad, that was a bad slip of the tongue. I hope he's not listening. Um, <laughs> they didn't, they, did, they, were very, they were very respectful in the way they communicated they weren't going to follow. They, they say plainly, respectfully, what they cannot do and what they must do. Now, uh, the Sanhedrin, in response, and we saw this last week, threatens them. We're not told exactly what the threats were, but they threatened them. But by this time, the whole city has heard about the lame men that they had healed um, in Jesus' name, and the whole city is praising God for it. So, so all the Sanhedrin can really do is threaten. They can't do anything else. They, so they threaten them, and they let them go. And that's where our text picks up this morning in verse 23. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, in the Greek, it just says they went to their own. It doesn't say about friends there. They went to their own, and that's probably a gathering of, of, of the church. I'm not sure why the ESV says they went to their friends. That's, that's not in the text. And, and gathering with the church doesn't just mean gathering with your friends. It, it also means sometimes gathering with people you don't like and who don't like you. Uh, but friends or not, if they're in Christ, they're your own, and you, you gather with them because Christ would have you do that. Now, uh, there's probably around well, more than 15,000 believers in Jerusalem at this point in time. So their own, if this is the church, it's probably not the whole church, my guess is, and it's just a guess, I might be wrong, my guess is that they go back to the house where they've been meeting since Jesus ascended. Um, uh, later on in Acts, Peter's going to be arrested again, and the church will gather in that same house to pray for him. And maybe that's what's happened while Peter and John have been in jail and on trial. Uh, probably the the other apostles are there when Peter and John arrive. Maybe the original 120 are there, gathered. Uh, the beggar who has been healed, I, I hope, we can't say for sure because Luke doesn't tell us, but I hope he's come along with them. And my guess is that he has because the day before he was clinging to them and wouldn't, wouldn't let them go, and he's probably not going to let them go still. So I bet he's, he's there as well. Peter and John go and they report to the church what the chief priests and elders, that's the Sanhedrin, uh, what the chief priests and elders have said. And that's a good thing. They report that because everyone in the church needs to know. They need to know that if you tell people about Jesus, you can expect trouble. The church needs to know that. I wonder at this point in Acts whether anyone who hears that report is, is surprised by that warning or whether anyone in that, in, that, in that 
wherever they are, was, was confused when Peter and John were arrested. And I say that because if you read back through Acts and through the Gospels, uh, Jesus, up to this point, has shielded the, the apostles and those with them, has shielded them from any harm whatsoever. Jesus has borne persecution and suffering, but, but they haven't. They've been protected from that this far, this far. Now, I've, I've been a Christian for some time, and, um, but I still fall into thinking that if, if I'm doing what Jesus tells me to do, well, that's my part, and it's his part to make things turn out well if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And by turning out well, what I tend to mean is I don't lose anything or get hurt in any way. Now, I don't say it to myself that way. I, I know better than, than to say it to myself that way, but I know I'm thinking that way because when things do start to go badly and I'm not doing anything wrong, I, I tend to wonder, what's wrong with Jesus? <laughs> now, 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 Jesus literally said, if they hated me, they're, they're, they're going to hate you. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. And, and not just the kind of trouble that you might have from persecution or, or suffering from opposition, but trouble in general. You're going to get sick. You might lose your job. People close to you are going to die. This is a sinful world full of trouble. So to be my disciple, Jesus says, you've got to take up your cross, your, your instrument of death, and endure these things daily. But of course, after he said, in this world you will have trouble, he also said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. And what that means is that the world is not sovereign over me. The world, or you, the world does not dictate what happens to me or you on a daily basis. Jesus does that. So whatever pain comes my way is somehow Jesus' medicine for, for my soul because he's overcome the world. So uh, Peter and John report these threats. And when they heard it, verse 24, they lifted up their voices together to God. Now, they might have done a lot of other things besides that. They could have headed back to Galilee. That was an option. Let's get out of Dodge. Let's go back to where it's safe. They might have turned on Peter and John and said, look what you've gotten us into. You just had to preach, didn't you? You just had to open your mouth right there in the temple and start preaching the resurrection. You brought all this trouble down on our heads. Or they could have just you know, spun out uh, railing against the injustice of the, of the Sanhedrin and their tyrannical behavior. But they lifted up their voices together to God. And that's, that is, they, they prayed. And that's good. Because none of those other things would have helped them at all. Going to God always does help. Sometimes uh, people say, you probably heard it, that, that prayer does not change God, it changes you. And that's true. But 
Prayer isn't just therapeutic. It's it's not just self-care. When you pray, you turn to the one being in the universe who can truly help you and who promises to help you. There's never a time, ever, it might seem otherwise, but there's never a time that you pray and God doesn't do good for you as a consequence. It's true that he doesn't change and that he doesn't change his mind, but he has determined from the beginning to help you through your prayers. I love that section in Luke where, where Jesus asked, what, what, what father when his son asks for bread is going to give him a scorpion? And he goes on and talks about if you as a father are, who are evil, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm an evil father, uh, know how to, but I know how to give good gifts to my kids. How much more is your, is your father in heaven? Does he know how to give good gifts to his children, to those who ask him? So when you get, the, get news that, that knocks you back, you, you go to him and lay it out. And, and then if it's just still too much for you, you know, bring the news to, to your own, to the church, and we'll pray, we'll pray with you too, like what's happening here. So let's look at the prayer itself. Uh, sovereign Lord. That first word, sovereign, uh, it's a description. They're describing the Lord as sovereign. What, is, what does that mean? What does it mean that he's sovereign? Uh, there was a book in the 70s. I think I've mentioned it to you before. There was a book in the 70s by a rabbi named Harold Kushner, and the title of it was, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good, good People? And it's a terrible title, as R.C. Sproul pointed out, because bad things never happen to, to good people because there are no good people. Bad things only happen to bad people. But bad things, why do bad things happen to bad people would be a terrible title for a book. So you have to, you have to change it up. And the, but the point of the book, the point of the book was that God really doesn't want bad things to happen. And, and, and it's... It, and it's not that he's not trying to make good things happen. It's, the problem is he's not powerful enough to stop the bad things. And that's, the rabbi said, that's why he put you here. And that's why he put me here to stop the bad things. Now, if that were true about God, the apostles would not pray, Sovereign Lord. They'd pray, Nice Lord, or helpful Lord, or well-intentioned Lord. Because, you know, he means well. He just can't carry out his plans. No, they pray, Sovereign Lord. What that means is that nothing happens in the universe unless God ordains it. Now, by ordain, you've got to be careful, I don't mean that he's the direct cause of everything. Uh, I do lots of bad things, and God doesn't make me do any of them. I do those all by, all by myself. Uh, but that I do them means that in some way, God has interwoven those bad things I do into the fabric of his plan for me, for those around me, and, and for the cosmos. God doesn't, because he's sovereign, God doesn't sit back and let things take their course. 
Some things he, he brings about, he causes directly, some things he doesn't, but he directs and orchestrates everything. Not even a sparrow, Jesus said. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's will. And he said that, he gave that little illustration uh, to comfort you. You're worth, he goes on to say, you're worth more than, than many sparrows. So, so don't worry if you're in pain that God's sitting back and, and, and letting you deal with it on your own, hoping somehow you're going to stop the bad thing. Now, I imagine that you, some of you anyway, have questions about God's sovereignty, and maybe you're thinking an illustration might be helpful. And, and if so, if that's what you're thinking, be patient, because a great illustration is coming up in our text, which we'll get to in a moment. Meanwhile, in the prayer, they describe God as the one who made the, heaven, made, made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's a very common phrase you hear in the church, especially liturgical churches. We use that phrase in prayers sometimes. So common, the, the staggering reality that it conveys might just kind of pass you by as you read them. Uh, there, there was once nothing except God. No pre-existent material for God to work with. Uh, no time, no space, nothing except God. And then he spoke and there were Stars and planets and the sky and the earth and the sea. And then he spoke again and he filled the sky and the earth and the, and the, and the sea with living creatures. Part of the reason the awe, when we consider that, fades is not just from over-familiarity, but also because of the, of, the, of the desperate ways people try to explain the existence of something, the universe rather than nothing, when there was once only nothing. It just popped into being, uncaused, some will say. Well, they won't say pops, but that's basically what they mean. We don't know how it happened, but it can't be God, they'll say. And then in the universe that just popped into being uncaused, uh, life, life also just came about, popped into being uncaused. And these same people tell you, if, if you don't believe them, that you're the, you're the one who's not thinking straight. Well, I'll believe the one who was there and made everything himself from nothing before I believe people who weren't there and want me to believe that something comes out of nothing. Not going to believe them. No, that's not true. That the sun and the stars, and the moon, and the trees, and the grass, and the oceans, every living creature, they're all his. He made every single one of them. In him, they live and move and have their being. So giving a lame man the power to walk, or the blind eyes to see, or the deaf ears to hear, uh, turning water into well-aged wine, or multiplying bread, uh, raising the dead, that's all astounding to us, uh, hard, hard to believe for us. But for him... It's just a matter of the will. just has to decide to do it. So when you, when you go to your father and you pray and he doesn't give you what you've asked for, it's never because he can't. It's never because he's trying and he just can't, can't do it. It's because you thought, and we've said this many times when it happens, you've thought you were asking for bread, but God knows you're really asking for a scorpion. You just don't see it. And he loves you too much to give you what you're asking for at that point. 
Now, this is a great prayer so far. Sovereign Lord who created everything. And then verse 25 and 26, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. You might recognize that. That's from Psalm 2. And if you go back and you read the psalm, there God sets his king, he sets his king, his son, on the throne. But, but the Gentiles and the, the peoples of the earth and the kings and the rulers, they, they rage, David tells us in that psalm. They're, they're full of bitter anger. They, and they, they set themselves, that's a, a kind of a, a military term, they're, they're setting, setting themselves in battle array, prepared for war. And they gather together to kill God's king. Now, if you read the psalm, God doesn't then say, oh, no, maybe I made a mistake putting this guy in the throne. Let me go find, let me find someone else. He doesn't do that. The, 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 David says, God's response is this, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Now, the questions you see there where David asks, why are the people raging? Why are they, why are they gathering and plotting in vain? Those aren't questions looking for informative answers. The tone is, is more like, what, what do these people think they're going to do? Do they, do they think they're going to unseat God's chosen king? That, that's foolishness. Why, why are they doing that? Why are they raging? Now, you should ask, as we're talking about Psalm 2, is, is that Psalm looking at something that, that has happened um, in, in David's time, or is, is going to happen in the future? Has it happened for us, or is it going to happen in the future? Um, David wrote Psalm 2, and you'll notice this if you ever go back to it, using the present tense and future tense. You kind of look forward to these happening in the future. But notice here in our text, the, the, the person who's praying, the people who are praying, Psalm 2, they replace that with the past tense, why did the Gentiles rage? Why were the rulers gathered? They see this as something that happened in the past, and we'll come back to that. Now, last week I quoted John, Jesus in John chapter 3, explaining why people reject him, why they, where this rage comes from. And he says, the light has come into the world, but men loved darkness. I, I want to do as I would like, and not be bothered by any king beyond myself. So 30 years ago, I was, I was, I was right there in Psalm 2. I was setting myself, I was plotting out ways and means and, and, and devices uh, and justifications for, for not bending the knee to the Lord's anointed. And I thought I was pretty clever, too. I thought I'd, I'd come up with some really good weapons, some good arguments against God and against his existence and against the existence of the, 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 why, I should or shouldn't, why I shouldn't have to bow to Jesus. I thought I had some really good, powerful, powerful weapons. There's no way I thought that, that I'll ever believe that nonsense. Well, God, seated in the heavens, laughed. And here I am after, after all, that, uh, all my weapons have been disarmed. The same enmity toward the light, toward God, that you see reflected here resides in every human heart. 
It's been there since Adam took the fruit. Humans pretending to be their own kings and queens, raging against God and his king. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. But while the fighting in our present day, the fighting of that war continues, God is really at this point in time just mopping things up. For truly, verse 27, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. The the human raging, the plotting, the gathering uh, together reached its apex when Herod and Pilate, the Gentiles, the Romans, and Israel too, gathered together with one accord in perfect, perfect harmony against Jesus, the, the holy servant of God. That's why they quote Psalm 2 in the past tense. It's been fulfilled. Notice, if you will, that holy servant language. It's very important because Psalm 2 is all about God's anointed ruler, his anointed king, and God's victory over all the peoples and kings who, who would oppose him. But what happens when Pilate and the Sanhedrin and the rest of them got, and Herod got together. Well, they killed, they killed the anointed one. It seems like the kings and people succeeded. How does Psalm 2, with God laughing at our puny efforts to unseat his king, apply to the crucifixion? We unseated him. We cast him down from his throne. Well, that is where the servant language comes in. That's language from Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, which you know well. Uh, Isaiah 52 begins, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. God's the speaker. He will be high and lifted up and, and highly exalted. But then, as you know, because I'm sure you've all read it, the tone changes, and it turns out that the servant is, is despised and afflicted. He's, he's, he's marred, bloody, afflicted, and cast away. And then you read, he was pierced for our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities. And then finally, maybe the most shocking part of that passage is It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The Lord has put him, the servant, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It was the will of the Lord to crush him so that he might crush the head of the serpent. So that that being crushed, he might bear your penalty for your transgressions and iniquities and offer forgiveness and eternal life. So that no matter how hard, how, how long you have raged against him, you can lay down your arms and take off your armor and go to him and he'll receive you and, and forgive you. Because it turns out he wasn't unseated or defeated or dethroned. It turns out the cross was his throne. 
From there, he, he cast down sin and death and the serpent. And now God has exalted him to the highest place. Because when Herod and, and, and Pilate and the Sanhedrin and the rest of them gathered, they gathered, this is the key part in verse 28, they gathered to do whatever your hand, God, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined take place. I told you we would come to an illustration of God's sovereignty. It's not one that I made up. I couldn't make up anything this wonderful. Do you, do you think that, that Pilate or Herod or Judas or Caiaphas got up on that Passover morning and said, yeah, time to, to, to put Jesus to death on the cross uh, so he can save us from our sins? Off we are this morning to go do God's will. You think they were saying that? They, they, were they were following the devices and the desires of their own hearts. Do you think God planted those evil desires and devices in their hearts? Well, the Apostle James tells us that God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. No, we didn't plant them. That's why even though they did whatever they did uh, by God's predestination, they're still responsible for it. God didn't make them evil or force them to do evil. They did what they wanted, when they wanted, and how they wanted. But while God didn't create the evil, he did channel it so that it flowed to the end that he determined. So here we are, face to face with two truths. And, and I know they can be very difficult truths, both intellectually and, and emotionally. God ordains everything that comes to pass. That's the first truth. Second truth is that people are responsible for every choice they make. Now, the Bible teaches both, and so the Christian holds on to both. There are all kinds of ways, you can read them, there are all kinds of ways that theologians have tried to, to figure out how, how those two things work together, and I think there's good ways to, to figure that out, but if in the end you just can't reconcile those two things together, well, you don't have to. Uh, when you die and you go to, go to see God, he's not going to say, okay, I'll let you in if you can tell me how human responsibility and God's sovereignty work together. So go at it. He's not going to ask you that. You don't have to reconcile those things. You have to hold to them because the Bible teaches them, but you don't have to reconcile them. So you just say to God, Lord, I don't know, I don't know how this works out, but I trust that you're good and that your plan is good and I'm just going to rest in that. You might also wonder, why would God ordain those things? If you look around and see terrible things in the world and wonder, why, why would God ordain some of the things he ordains? Well, if you think about it, God predestined that the most wicked act in human history, the greatest injustice, the greatest pain and most hellish suffering ever endured by any human being would be his own to endure. He, he's the only innocent person who has ever died. 
He's the only good person who's ever experienced the torments of hell. And he ordained and predestined all of that for himself. He did it for you. To rescue you from your sins and to restore this sin-ruined world. And so, and so when you suffer pain and loss and sorrow, you can know he, he's born it. He knows that. And he's with you. And, and if he can bring that, that damnable thing that men meant and women meant for the greatest evil, if he can bring the cross, the crucifixion, to good and joy and beauty and glory and salvation for the whole world, he will, as he promises you, work all things together for your good and joy and beauty and glory. You don't have to doubt that. Now, so far in this prayer, they haven't asked for anything, but that changes there in verses 29 through 30. And now, uh, Lord, they say, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and, and signs and wonders are performed through the, na- through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, I hope I would pray something like that in this, in this situation, but I think I might also pray, Lord, smite down the Sanhedrin. Uh, destroy them. Take them out, Lord. Uh, they killed your son, and now they're, threat- they're threatening us. Well, there may have been some in that room, if it was a room, who, who felt that way. And if you ever feel that way about someone who's after you, someone who doesn't like you, don't conceal that from God. Uh, bear your heart to him. Let him know that. David does much the same thing in the Psalms often. God, let God handle your, your feelings in that, in that regard. But, but here the church doesn't do any of that. They, they simply ask God to look upon the threats. Now, God knows about the threats. He was there when the threats were threatened, when they were made. But the church means, we trust you, Lord, to, to, to handle the Sanhedrin however you want to handle them. You, you, you do with them as you would. See, they, they've just prayed about God predestining his own crucifixion through, in part, the Sanhedrin. And I bet... When Jesus was going through his ordeal, when he was going through the trial, when he was going through the crucifixion, I bet some of the people in this, in this room, in the, in the room in Acts, were praying, Lord, stop them. They're, they're killing Jesus. Stop it. Put an end to it. Destroy those people. I bet they were praying that. And yet, thank God, he didn't do anything they prayed if they prayed that. I, I think that the people praying this prayer are, are, are know that whatever, whatever the Sanhedrin does, even if God lets the Sanhedrin carry out their threats, they, they know it's going to be for the good, our good, and the glory of Jesus in the end, because God is good, and he's sovereign, and he loves us. And if he brings good out of the crucifixion of Jesus, certainly he can bring good out of our persecution. Now, for themselves, they also pray, and again, if I were there, I'd... I would definitely pray something more like, Lord, please protect me. Please defend me. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of prayer. You should pray that if you, if you need help and, and defense. Uh, I'm not sure. Again, I hope I would. I'm not sure I would. 
I'm not sure I would ask for more boldness at this point because boldness is exactly what got them into the mess in the first place. Maybe I'd pray for more nuance, more, more winsomeness or something to, to, to mince my words a little better. They want boldness. And not just boldness in a general kind of way. They want boldness for a purpose, to speak your word, they say. Now, it's very good, again, to ask God to defend you from your enemies. God is your defender. He's your helper. He will take care of you. Uh, but you should know this is not a defensive prayer. This is an offensive prayer. This is a prayer that your enemies might be disarmed, pierced, and cut to the heart. Not by a sword, but by the only weapon that kills dying men and raises them up immortal. This word, the Lord's word, the gospel, turns God's enemies into his sons and his daughters. We read about that in the epistle this morning. It pleased God, Paul writes. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the strangeness of what we preach, Christ crucified, uh, to save those who believe. So, so, so they don't want to be timid. They want to preach boldly so that their enemies might be made sons and daughters of God. Keep us, they pray, from being timid and mincing our words. And Lord, keep doing the miracles that you're doing. It's really important at this point in time. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, and so people there in Jerusalem believed that he was cursed by God because he was hung on a tree. In Deuteronomy, it says he's cursed by God. And so to see people cured miraculously by the power of Jesus and in Jesus' name, well, those, those miracles vindicate Jesus publicly. They give confirmation for those who are willing to hear and to believe that God indeed raised Jesus from the dead. So they want those miracles to continue, and they do, as we'll see as we go through Acts. Now, last verse. And when they prayed, the place which they were gathered together, this is verse 31, were shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, have you ever been in a church service and uh, everyone's really on fire, uh, maybe not in an Anglican church service, but another, another church service. Everyone's on fire and excited and, and really confident in God and trusting in his, in his power. And have, there's, there's, everyone's really encouraged. And then, but you're sitting there, and you're not feeling any of that. So you're, you might be saying the same words they're saying, but you're not really feeling, uh, feeling any, any of that. You're feeling maybe discouraged, maybe doubting some, maybe afraid. Well, if, if that's you... Um, in this room, and you're feeling that way, well, Jesus, Jesus sees you, he loves you, he has compassion on you, and he wants to help you, so just pray, Lord, help me, I'm having lots of doubts, discouragement, don't be afraid to tell someone about it. But if, 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 if you had been in that room, if, if anyone was in the room where this prayer was being said and, and not feeling it, not thinking, not having too much confidence in what was being prayed, maybe doubting a little bit, I think this earthquake might have helped allay those fears. It was a localized earthquake, one house, not all of Jerusalem, just one house shaking. I think that would help provide a little bit of confidence in God's power. And then you'll see they were filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit which would have done away completely with the fears. Now, they've already been, everyone in, this room, in that room has been already indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and he didn't leave and then come back. That's not what's happening here. 
To be filled here just means that they are given power by the Holy Spirit for the specific task of preaching the gospel boldly. And so they do. Despite the threats. And I pray that we also might be so filled by the Holy Spirit that we go out of this place and preach the gospel with every bit as much boldness. Let's pray. Pick up here next week. Father, we thank you for, um, for your sovereignty that we do not live in a world in which it's up to us to make the bad things go away. Um, we thank you that you are a God who is good and powerful, and we ask that you help us to trust you um, even when times are dark and we are in pain. Trust in your goodness and your power and your love for us. Um, I ask that you might give us also boldness um, to, to say what needs to be said even when we're afraid. Um, I pray that we might trust the power of your word and your gospel to change hearts and lives. And I pray for anyone here whose heart has not yet been changed that you might do that this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.